I want to take as my text this morning, and for the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at texts from, as they appear in the lectionary, from the letter of James. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. That's part of the text that, uh, that Godson read. James chapter 1, and beginning at verse 19, and if you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1199. James chapter 1 and beginning at verse 19, which I'd like us to look at again. James chapter 1 and beginning at verse 19. And so James Wright, James who became a significant leader in the Jerusalem church after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, uh, who happened to be, by the way, the oldest uh, of Jesus' brothers after Jesus. Jesus was the firstborn. And so James, or as he would have been known by his family as Jacob, he writes to this Christian community who seemed to be actually primarily Christian Jewish people. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, as the case may be. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. And therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and then goes away at once and forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, abides, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This morning I want to talk about knowing and doing the Word. Knowing and doing the Word. In my experience, I, I haven't ever met anyone who seriously objected to the logical relationship that exists between knowing and doing. In fact, very often it's exactly because we want to get some particular thing done that we often seek to know. We seek knowledge. Indeed, we seek knowledge because we want to do whatever it is that we want to do the right way. And we know that uh, more or less instinctively that knowing and doing uh, go hand in hand. Indeed, we frequently criticize others for failing to act properly based upon what they know. For instance, in politics, uh, the question will sometimes be posed, and it has been posed, I think, at least, of course, in my memory, since Nixon, and that is, what did the president know, and when did he know it? And it's the answer to this question that determines whether or not we believe the president has acted properly or not based upon what he knows. Indeed, it was James in this same letter of James in chapter 4 and verse 17 who wrote, whoever knows the right thing to do, whoever knows the right thing to do but fails to do it, knowing and doing, for him it is sin. 
Whoever knows the right thing to do but fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so knowing and doing go hand in hand. And God says to us this morning in our text, through what James has written here and what we know as the first chapter of James, he tells us, know the word and do the word. Know the word and do the word. And the first is know the word. And he tells us that knowing the word begins with hearing the word. Notice again, verses 19 through 21. And know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, to listen, to hear. Slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. And therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And so knowing the word begins with hearing. Indeed, uh, James says, be quick to hear. In fact, in the Greek, the, 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 the verb to, to hear is in the present imperative. It, we, we might translate this, be always quick to hear, always. It's a command, and you should always be doing it, which is the significance of the present tense. And to be quick to hear it means, um, uh, if you like, uh, to be ready to hear, uh, to be eager to hear. You know, what, is, what has God said? What has God said in his word? And uh, what is God saying to me now through what he said? This is what it means to be quick to hear. And then James says, uh, be slow to speak. We usually get this turned around, right? Uh, there's sort of a hint in our, in our, in our anatomy. You, you know, we have one mouth and two ears. What might suggest we might listen twice as much as we talk. Mea culpa. Be slow to speak. If it means anything, I suppose, at the very least, it means to listen as much as or more or at least before you speak. This reminded me of something that Fran Leibowitz wrote. She wrote this. She said, think before you speak and read before you think. I think that's a great. Think before you speak and read before you think. Now, this is interesting because of when we're talking about hearing and listening, how it relates to hearing with us, right? When I'm reading the scriptures, I'm hearing it. When I'm reading it to you, you're hearing it. And so reading and hearing, and so that's why I thought of what she said. Think before you speak and read before you think. And we talk about uh, what would Jesus do? Well, in order for you to know what would Jesus do in your particular circumstance, you need to know what he did. And how do you know what he did? Well, you might want to pick up the Gospels and read and hear. In fact, I remember doing a Bible study, an African Bible study. We're looking at the text, read it three times, what's a word or phrase, and what does it mean, and what's God telling you to do? And I remember the group that, that I was doing it with, they were shocked by what Jesus said and what he was doing. And I think we're shocked because we're not altogether familiar with it, right? But for us uh, living in the, in the modern age, indeed, uh, to, to read and to hear, 
uh, go hand in hand. In ancient times, as you know, the people didn't, have, didn't own Bibles. It wasn't until, what, the 16th century that you had the printing press, which made the written material uh, accessible uh, for, for common people if you happened to have the ability to read. But in the ancient world, those were rare items. They would be owned by synagogues or, or churches that usually met in the homes of richer people, and certain texts would be copied and so forth. But people, the, the people themselves didn't own them. They would go to the church and hear, hear them, which, by the way, they had a, great, a greater ability for hearing and remembering things, just like as if a person loses their sight. Uh, the other senses take, up, take over for it. I mean, I can't remember anything. I'm always constantly saying to people, give me a note, write me a note. But in the ancient times, their ears were very attuned. And if you can imagine Jesus going around and saying, I mean, how many times do you suppose he told the parable of the sower? Well, he told that parable over and over and over again. In fact, this relates to uh, what confidence you might have in the New Testament uh, you know, modern people would say, oh my gosh, well, it was written 30, 30 years after Jesus did it. Well, first of all, the, the apostles are with him all the time while he's saying those things over and over again. They've got this great memory because they're all trained to, 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 to memorize. And then they've been saying it for 30 years. I would have imagined that it would be rather a piece of cake to write down what you've been saying for 30 years. But that's the situation with the ancient uh, world, hearing or listening to the word in a private or public setting because they didn't have Bibles, but we do have Bibles. And there's something, maybe some sort of a left-handed directive, I think, uh, that we should read them uh, because we can read them. In fact, I think the, the statistic I remember from a few years back that uh, the average American home owns 2.75 Bibles. I don't know what a three-quarters of a Bible looks like, but uh, that's just an average. Uh, and I, well, let's just take, let's just take a poll here. Uh, raise your hand if you have a Bible at home. Well, there you go. I won't ask you where it is, but you got them, right? In fact, Patrick Morley, in his great book, Man in the Mirror, he wrote this. He said, personally, I have never known anyone whose life has changed in any significant way apart from a regular study of the Word of God. And so James says, be quick to hear and slow to speak. And then he adds this interesting thing. He says, and be slow to anger. That is really it's sort of convicting, right? Slow to anger, slow to speak, quick to hear. And I think in general, we get these all sort of mixed up. But he says, be slow to anger. Hold off. Right? And he, and he adds, because human anger does not result in the righteousness of God. And I think that this is a, perhaps a counterintuitive for a lot of people. Uh, because no one seems to feel more right or righteous than an angry person. Have you noticed that? <laughs> if, you want to, if you want to find somebody who feels right and righteous, go find an angry person. Uh, but James is saying uh, what you might think is going on maybe isn't. In fact, someone has written this. This person writes, and in my experience, it's, it's not that people get angry so much about that which, is actu that which actually threatens what is true and good in God's eyes. My experience is not that people get angry so much about that which actually threatens what is truly good and right in God's eyes. More often, what angers most people is that what threatens 
the achievement of their own personal happiness, that which stands in the way of them getting their way. Of course, in a culture where the achievement of personal happiness is regarded as a divine right, anger about not getting one's own way automatically becomes a righteous cause, a battle against evil. And so no one feels more righteous than the person who feels that he or she must fight against whatever is standing in the way of him or her getting his or her own way. Something about that sort of rings true. It's interesting, the psalmist and tradition would have it that David wrote Psalm 37. Psalm 37 and verse 8 says, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It leads only to evil. Sound words. It reminds me of what someone once pointed out, that the word anger and the word danger, in fact, the word anger is just one letter shy of the word danger. Proverbs 14 and verse 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts foolishness. And so James says, knowing the word begins with hearing the word. And then James says, and and knowing the word involves embracing the word. I think uh, a lot of Christian people, you know, wherever your Bible happens, wherever your 2.75 Bibles happen to be in the house, uh, it, it's, it's kind of like, huh, you know, or we maybe use it as a talisman, you know, and we tell stories about the soldier who had a pocket New Testament and it saved his life because the b- bullet hit the Bible and, you know, so now I always carry a, a Bible in my front pocket or some other such thing like that. Or we give them as gifts. I'm a priest. Do you know how many gift Bibles I've gotten? Get him a Bible, because <laughs> he's a priest. He wouldn't have one of those. <laughs> but uh, anyway, and I read them, so if you want to give me a Bible, that's fine. <laughs> but notice that. He says that knowing the word involves embracing the word. Notice verse 21. And therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. This is, in fact, we would never say that. Uh, we just say, uh, we don't talk like that anymore. When I was a kid growing up, we, they, people talked like that. What a dirty old man are or, or you. What a, you're, you're filthy mouth and all. And I, do, anybody remember, do you remember the, the taste of the soap? You know, I don't think that, now, that, now they would arrest well, never mind. Uh, maybe they should. I don't know. <laughs> but um, uh, he, it reminds me of something that Bishop Ryle, who was a bishop uh, in Livermore, or Livermore, I'm from California, Liverpool, excuse me, uh, Liverpool in the, in the mid-19th century, uh, and he said, uh, he talked about these wild, uh, you know, feral dogs in town, you know, uh, and they would all hang together, you know, in their little troop or their little, you know, pack. Uh, and he said, they stunk the high heaven. He said, they didn't think they stunk, <laughs> but I, we could smell them. And uh, we, we don't always, when we're sinners and we're all around sinners, we may not think that sin is all that sinful. And so this kind of language might seem uh, melodramatic. But in the eyes of God, one only has to look at the cross to wonder just how serious God is about sin. But he says, uh, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness 
and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And so he says, put off your sin like uh, dirty clothes, basically. Don't nurse your sin. <laughs> Don't cling to it. Reject it is what he's saying. Cast it off like old garments that you don't I, in fact um, I haven't worn a belt in a long time and I had to wear a belt recently and this belt that I had it was kind of falling apart and so I got to go over to the mall today and get get a new belt you know what I'm going to do with the old belt when I get the new belt I'm going to trash that dude I don't want it anymore that's what he's saying here cast off your sin like dirty garments and then he says and then embrace the word Cast off sin, reject that, and then embrace the word. Receive it. Embrace it. Make it your own. It's not just for the priest. Now, people who think that, like, we pay him to do that. There's lots of priests, if you think... <laughs> I mean, we know the, about clergy scandals. You think, well, you might want... Well, this is for everybody. Christ's call uh, to obedience and new life and all of that is for all of us. He says, embrace it. Make it your own. He says, with meekness, that is, with humility. Remember that God is God and you aren't. He calls, he describes it the implanted word uh, that's able to deliver you. That is, uh, the, the word that God has planted in your heart and in your mind if you belong to him. In fact, it's reminiscent of a verse from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 14, where Moses, by tradition, wrote, for the word is very near you. The word is in your mouth, in your heart. And notice why. <laughs> so you can do it. So you can do it. And so that's the first thing, know the word. Then God says to James, and do the word. Because knowing's not enough. Notice again, verses 22 and 20 through 25. And be doers of the word. <laughs> and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. You don't look in the mirror, do you? He's like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and then he goes away and at once he forgets what he looks like. That's what a hearer, just hearing. He sees it and then he's off. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law, that's the word of God, the law of freedom, the law of, of liberty, makes me think of Cramner's words, whom to serve is perfect freedom. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the word of God, and perseveres in it. He doesn't just walk away, but perseveres. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, a doer who takes action. He will be blessed in his doing. And so James says that to hear the word without doing is to be deceived. To listen to the word. To read the word. To agree with the word. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, the heads nod and yes. But then to imagine that that's enough, James says, is, to, is a deception. 
In fact, Jesus said famously, it's recorded for us in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, why do you call me Lord? It's like, stop calling me that. Why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I say? Stop calling. Is Jesus your Lord? Oh, of course. Do you do what he says? Well, the stuff I like. Indeed, if we're listening and learning and agreeing, but we aren't doing, we're not disciples. We're auditors. When I was in college, I don't know if they have that anymore. In college, if you didn't want to do the work, you could pay a lesser fee and you got to sit in and listen. <laughs> but you didn't have to write the papers. You didn't have to take the test, but you got to listen. And you'd come out and say, well, wasn't that interesting? But you don't have to do any of the work. And I think perhaps the church has a lot of auditors. They listen and, well, it was good today, or it wasn't good today, or I don't like that song, or what, what was Scott, what flew up his nose? As if that was the point. James illustrates it with this uh, illustration, right? At verse 23. For if any, anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's, he's like something. He's a simile here, an extended metaphor, like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. Like, you look in the mirror and you go, oh my gosh, we're like, I didn't, uh, I think recently, you know, the president was on and they slipped him a note and said, you got mustard on your chin, did you see that? It was good. He got the word and he did something with it. He wiped the mustard off his chin. But this person gets a note that says there's mustard on your chin. They go, oh, you know what? There's mustard on my chin. And they don't wipe it off. They don't do anything. But all the while you're telling them you got mustard. And they're going, I do. I have mustard. We, you know what? Well, we all have mustard. That's the confession, you know. Well, we're all sinners. I don't have any in particular, but we all have them collectively, that sort of thing. Right. Auditors. But James says he looks at himself and goes away, and at once he forgets what he's like. And so knowing's not enough. Finally, James says that doing what we know is where the blessing lies. I think that uh, the... Uh, <laughs> I think that maybe uh, not a few people who need to conv be convinced about it. And, and, and maybe it is because of, of so little experience. You, you know, faith, faith oftentimes makes you take a step forward into something, in fact, it often does, into, into the unknown. He's telling me to do something that he says is going to be a blessing, but in my, where I'm standing, it doesn't sound like a blessing. It sounds like this burden this duty but if God is working in your heart you might say well you know what that's what it looks like to me but he's saying it's going to be a blessing so why don't I just go ahead and trust him he's inviting me to get out of the boat and walk on the water no I wouldn't think that that was possible but then again I see him walking on it and he said come on out so what am I going to do in fact, as, uh, I think it was John Ortberg who wrote the book, if you're going to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. 
If you're going to be blessed, you have to trust Him and do what He's calling you to do and find out by personal experience that indeed it is true that those who do the Word are those who are blessed. Indeed, James says that the one who is blessed is not the one who hears and knows and then walks away unchanged. Rather, the one who is blessed is the one who hears and knows. He says, who abides, who stays with it, who obeys the truth and is transformed by it. This is the person that you might have met a year ago and for some reason there's something new about her. Something new about him. Because he or she has been engaging this word and it's changing. And then she says, I don't know, Lord. I don't know. But I'm going to go ahead. And wow, wow, wow. And people who do that, they get better at that. And they become more trusting because they keep on trusting him with a little thing. And then it's a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And then all of a sudden, they're telling a story that you can't even relate to. <laughs> I mean, how, how, how would you respond if somebody said, hey, let me tell you when I walked on the water and what it was like. You know what it's like to walk out on the lake and you got the water splashing against your ankles? And you go, no, I haven't any idea. Well, it's great. It's like people making commitments to giving and that sort of thing. The average evangelical Christian, and they're the most you know, dedicated is it in America relative to these types of things. They give on average 4% of their income. Well, that's not even half a tithe. <laughs> but you meet somebody who's tithing and more and growing and giving, and you think they're mad because Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And they practice that, and they're nuts about it. They're happy. They're filled with joy. It was Jesus who said this famously in John chapter 8. If you abide in my word, not just listen to it and walk away. If you abide in my word, that is to say that you stay with it and you're working it and you're living it. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will liberate you. The truth will set you free. And everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Freedom and slavery. Donald Miller in his best-selling book, Blue Like Jazz, wrote this. He said, what I believe is not what I say I believe. What I believe is what I do. Or Leslie Vernick in her book, listen to this title, How to, do, how to Act Right When Your Spouse Acts Wrong. Those are both convicting and helpful. She wrote this. She said, some of us may not be growing spiritually simply because we don't put into practice the things that God teaches us. Indeed, the Christian life isn't just about knowing. The Christian life is about knowing and doing. And I'd be surprised to find anyone listening this morning, either present or on the live stream, who would disagree with that. And so if we're having a, a problem bringing these two things together, the knowing and the doing in a meaningful way, it's probably, probably not an intellectual problem. 
It's a volitional problem. The problem is not in our mind. The problem is in our will. And so in all likelihood, the question is not, what do you know? But instead, what are you going to do? In fact, that's a pretty good question. What are you going to do with what you heard today? Knowing and doing the word. Let us pray. Lord, I always appreciated what Cramner says, and we pray it in the prayer book, the daily office. To know you and to serve you is perfect freedom. That's exactly what Jesus said. And he said it because that was his experience too. I do always those things that please the Father. To get to the place where sin is a problem rather than obedience, that, that's a great, that's a grand day. Help us, Lord, to get to that place, to see things the way that you see it, that it's much more wonderful <laughs> and joyous to live in the light than to live in the darkness, to live with integrity rather than to live a lie, to walk in the truth, to respond in obedience, to know that you're God and not to take or try to take your role away and make you our servant. Help us, Lord, to move in that direction, to, to, to take our lives into that lane and get where you want us to go. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.